Lothal Life. Uh, it's good to see you guys again on another Sabbath day. Uh, I see a few new faces, so if you are new here, uh, my name is Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at FLM. Uh, if you're new to church or you're new to Full Life, thank you for joining us. Uh, it, I know it's not easy to worship uh, in a foreign place with people you don't know, but uh, we consider you family uh, in Christ. So welcome. Uh, stick around after. We'd love to have a chat and to get to know you. Um, and just before I begin, Nathan touched on it uh, during the announcements. Uh, we have an exciting announcement. Uh, one of our brothers and one of our sisters got engaged yesterday. So Jenny and Jason Park got engaged yesterday. Um, I promised them I'd embarrass them from the pulpit and announce it. So uh, give them your congratulations. Like their photos. Their photos are up on social media. So have a look. Um, yeah. So congratulations, guys. I'm so happy for you guys. All right. Um, so we are in Mark chapter 12. Uh, we're going to continue our series. And we're in Mark 12, verses 13 to 17. Mark 12, 13 to 17. I'll give you guys a second to turn to it. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And the word of God reads, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, this is a short passage, but nonetheless, it is a timely reminder of who our life belongs to. Lord, as we examine this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians as they try to trap him, once again, help us to understand the significance of what's going on in this passage and what it means for us today. Lord, I pray for all of us, uh, despite what kind of a week we might have gone through, we pray that you would focus our hearts to be receptive to your voice, to be transformed by the power of your word. And so may you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, most of you guys only see me on Sundays, and most of the time... I'm dressed like this. Uh, but for those that see me outside of Sundays, uh, you probably would have noticed that I don't, I'm not a very fashionable guy. Uh, I'm not big on self grooming. Like, I don't spend a lot of time getting ready. I, I, I get ready so quickly. Like, once I'm washed, like, that's it. Um, I'll chuck on anything. Um, until I met my wife, uh, I, I'd only heard about face wash uh, up until I was 31. It was a bar of soap for everything. 
Um, except for my hair, I used shampoo. But if I didn't have shampoo, bar of soap it was. Um, I'm not big. Oh, well, I never. I still don't use moisturizer. Um, despite my wife pleading with me and buying me moisturizer, I just cannot be bothered to put on. I don't see the point of it. I'm like water can moisturize my face. Um, but apparently that dries your face. But yeah, anyways. Um, I'm also not big on clothes shopping. Uh, I will buy based off what I need. So if I have no more pairs of pants left, I will go to my... I don't even care about the brand either. I'll just go to Kmart. First pair of pants I see that fit me, that's the one I'm walking out with. I'll be in and out in like two minutes. Um, I don't even like trying stuff off. If it like roughly fits, uh, I'll, I'll just buy it straight away, much to my wife's dismay. Um, there was one time, however, I did decide to spoil myself and buy... What I thought were nice clothes, like, I don't know what makes clothes nice. Um, but it was actually in the weeks leading up to a trip to Korea uh, when I would go to see my now wife, then not yet girlfriend, uh, and I was going to ask her, you want to start dating? And I thought, you know what, I better, I better dress nice. I'm going to meet her parents as well and ask for permission for me to be able to date their daughter. I'm very old-fashioned like that. Um, and I thought, oh, I, I can't I can't wear Kmart clothes. Um, they're they're going to think like a peasant's come from Sydney. I better dress nice. I better buy a suit as well. And I don't know much about clothes shopping uh, other than Kmart and Target, which is where I even bought my shoes at one stage. And so I walked through Parramatta Westfield, I remember, and I saw two shops that I thought were high-end shops. Uh, YD and Connor in Parramatta and I remember as I went in I was greeted by a female shop assistant and she gave you friendly she's like you know is there anything I can help you with and in hindsight it was a stupid thing to do but I said to her I have x amount of dollars I'm gonna spend all this I need to buy a new wardrobe and I explained how I'm going to Korea to ask a girl to date me I'm gonna meet her parents I need to look nice and I'm gonna spend x amount of dollars and I could see the dollar signs light up in her eyes. Um, and so she took me, she goes, go to the change room, wait outside there, I'll bring you everything. And as I stood outside the change room, um, she practically brought half the store to the change room. Um, and then she'd go, go in, wear this and wear this and put these shoes on and then come out after, like show me what you look like. And I remember every time I put on an outfit that she told me to, I would come out. And she'd shower me with flattery. Um, and it was like, it was over the top. Like, I'd just wear a simple pair of jeans and a plain t-shirt. And she'd be like, OMG. Wow. You're, you're, are you a model? You look like a model. And then I remember I went back in, changed, like, try this suit on. You, like, if this, if this suits you, you've got to try this suit on. So try this suit. So I put the suit on. And then she's like, and then she called a male shop assistant over and she's like, he must be a model. Do, do you model? And she asked me, like, you have to let me take a photo of you. Like, I need to send this to YD or Connor headquarters so that they can see and even put it on their social media. And as she started to ham it up, I was like, okay, okay, calm down. Um... Because as, you know, every guy has a certain level of self-esteem. Like, every guy, 
at some point when they get ready, they look in the mirror and they're like, yeah. Like they, every guy does that. Like, like they might not admit it, but every guy at some point in their life has looked in the mirror like killer. And as much as every guy has self-esteem, um, I know my place. I know I'm not a model. I'll never be on the cover of GQ. Uh, I'm short. Uh, my wife reminds me that I'm, I'm overweight. Um, never in my life has anyone ever told me I look like a model. Um, even mothers, you know, mothers shower praises on their children. You're beautiful. Don't tell, don't let anyone tell you that you're you're the most handsome young man in the world, or to their daughter, you're the most beautiful girl in the world. Don't anyone, don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. Um, immigrant parents, however, are quite honest. Uh, I remember my sister, as a as a child, said, "I want to be a model," and my dad said, "Not with that face." Um, my mom said the same thing to me as well. Um, but for this shopkeeper, she showered me with flattery. And I get it. It was her job to use flattery to make the sale. Uh, it was designed to put me off guard so that I would buy as much as possible. Um, and it worked. I bought so many things that she told me looked good. I wore it, went to Korea with so much confidence, and my wife looked at me and was like, where did you buy these who told you to buy these clothes? Um, but it was flattery. Flattery designed to catch me off guard. And I share this with you because that's what we see the Jewish religious leaders do in today's passage. They use flattery, like outright flattery, as a means of catching Jesus off guard in order to trap him. Now, if you recall a few weeks ago, you know we're up to chapter 12, and I mentioned multiple times, uh, if you don't remember me saying this, you mustn't have been listening because I've said it countless times. Chapter 9 is where we kind of enter into part 2 of Mark's gospel. So the first eight chapters, Jesus was up north in around Galilee. From chapter 9 onwards, Jesus is on a one-way ticket to Jerusalem. And if you recall, you know the, the, the disciples, the apostles, and the people that were following Jesus, as they headed towards Jerusalem, uh, they were getting excited. But the passages also told us, they were getting a bit scared. And the reason that they were getting scared was because Jerusalem, for them, was the belly of the beast. You know, up until this point, every opposition that Jesus faced, whether it was the Pharisees, you know, the scribes, the Jewish leaders, religious authorities, their headquarters was Jerusalem. So if Jesus opposed people, it will face opposition in Galilee. You know, people came to visit him oppose him, challenge him. They were now heading to the headquarters of the opposition, Jerusalem, which was the spiritual capital of the world. And so the apostles, they're nervous because they don't know what's coming. They, like, they imagine a fight's going to appear, like a fight's going to happen. They're not wrong um, because we saw last week people came to challenge Jesus. Uh, but they have every right to be nervous and afraid. Now, today, you know, last week we saw the chief priests, elders, and scribes challenge, challenge Jesus. Today we're going to see a, a team approach Jesus, Pharisees and Herodians. And then next week we're going to see another team made of Sadducees. And the week after, it'll be a group of scribes. Um, and everything the apostles were afraid of, they start to see happen bit by bit. Different teams come and attack Jesus, fight with Jesus, argue with Jesus. 
all their fears start to be realized as they encounter group after group of people devising and scheming to bring the downfall of Jesus by any means possible. And we see this in today's passage, verse 13. And they, who is they? The chief priests from last week. They sent to him some of the scribes and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So last week, chief priests, scribes, and elders, elders uh, they challenged Jesus, but they failed. They failed to discredit him. And so what they've done in today's passage is they've assembled a new team, a team made up of Pharisees and Herodians to go seek out Jesus and to challenge him and to, like, to trap him in his words. And what's crazy about this scheme is that Pharisees and Herodians traditionally hated each other. Um, they, they, they despised each other. Pharisees especially looked at Herodians and just saw them as Jewish traitors, traitors to their own people, because they were like Roman puppets. Um, and yet, in today's passage, they're willing to join forces and work together to fight who they thought was a common enemy, Jesus. The Pharisees, if you don't know, were strict keepers of the Jewish law. The Mosaic law. These guys were religious fanatics. They weren't just intent on keeping the law. They created extra artificial rules to make sure that they didn't even come close to breaking the Mosaic law. So, you know, the Mosaic law teaches us to keep the Sabbath holy. The Sabbath shall be a day of rest. They set distance limits of how far that they could walk on the Sabbath to make sure that, you know, they didn't want to walk too much. Otherwise, that had become work in their eyes. They were fanatical religious nuts. And in their eyes, the keeping of the Jewish law usurped any responsibility that a person had to any secular authority or government. God's word, God's law to these people came first. The keeping of the law and the commandments was of the most importance. And they looked upon the Roman government with disdain. They were like, we, we, cannot, we are God's chosen people. We are a people of the law. We cannot believe we are under the oppression and rule of this unclean, idolatrous, Gentile government. They hated this Roman government because one, they were Gentiles. And two, because they were idolaters. And so the Pharisees, it's only natural that they hated the Herodians. Because who were the Herodians? The Herodians were political supporters of Herod. That's where you get the name. Herodians, Herod. And Herod, who was Herod? He was a puppet king for the Roman Empire. He was a traitor, considered a traitor to his people. He was like the, 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 the mediator, the, the in-between man that Rome had set up to control the Jewish people and kind of establish Rome's authority in this region of the land. So he was considered a puppet for Rome. And the Herodians were considered his lackeys. And so if the Pharisees were known for being religious, the Herodians were known for being political. And it was a bizarre idea by the chief priest. But at the same time, it was a genius idea. A genius plan to assemble this team of Pharisees and Herodians to confront Jesus. And we'll find out why in a moment. But this team comes to Jesus and they take a very different approach to the opposition from last week. Like I said, they begin with flattery. They say, teacher, rabbi, 
we know that you are true. We know that you don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. They tried to catch Jesus off guard by you know, just showering him with praise. Teacher, rabbi, you know, professor, we know that you speak nothing but truth. Like everything you say, just like it's, it's truth. And we know that you have all the integrity in the world. We know that you know you 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 speak nothing but truth to such an extent that you, you have this integrity that you're not even going to allow people's opinions to sway you from speaking the truth. That's how pure of a person we think you are. And we know also that you teach the true way true way of God. Like no one teaches the way you do. They hammer it up, don't they? Almost to the level of that YD shop assistant. They're piling on the compliments, one after the other. And ironically, everything that they're saying is actually true. And yet, we know that they don't believe a word of what they're saying. How do we know this? Because if they believed it, they would have followed him, wouldn't they? But thinking that they've caught him off guard, they, they, they ham it up, they give all these compliments, and then they slip in this question to trap Jesus. They ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, to the emperor, or not? Should we pay the taxes or should we not? And it seems like an innocent question, doesn't it? But here is where we find the reason. Like I mentioned that this was a genius plan by the chief priest. Here is why it was a genius plan to assemble a team made up of Pharisees and Herodians. Because remember, the Pharisees were all about the Jewish law. They were all about religion. They were religious zealots. The Herodians were all about politics. They were political loyalists to Herod and ultimately to the Roman Empire. Their allegiance was to Caesar. And so the true intention of their question, this question about taxes, is actually found in the Greek word that they use for taxes. Because the word that they use, it's a generic word. Kenson is the word that they use. It's a generic word for tax. And there's significance to the word that they use. Because there's many types of taxes, aren't there? There's income tax. There's land tax. Um, but this was just a, a general tax. The general word for tax. And when they used this word kenson, Jewish people immediately knew what it was referring to. It was referring to an annual tax that all citizens and you know, residents of the Roman Empire had to pay. It was a once-a-year tax that they had to pay, and it cost one denarius, like a day's wage. And it was a tax that was paid for simply existing. If you exist in the Roman Empire, you pay this tax. But what was so bad about that? Like, we, like anyone that has worked for any length of time and pays their taxes, as much as you hate it, you know where the taxes go. There's you know, things in this country that are funded by taxpayers' dollars. What was so bad about paying this generic annual tax? And how is a question about this generic tax going to trap Jesus? It was designed to trap Jesus because of what this tax represented. Like verse 15 Jesus says, knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, 
Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Now, at this point in history, if you ever saw a denarius coin, you can probably Google it when you get home, um, but a denarius coin had a very unique design, kind of like with today. You know, you've got Queen Elizabeth on one side, and then it was like heads or tails, like Queen Elizabeth, and then the monetary value on the other side. Um, a denarius coin on one side, kind of like that, it, it bore the image of Tiberius Caesar, who was the adopted son of the emperor Augustus Caesar. And the emperor was traditionally someone that the Romans considered to be a god. They considered him as a deity. And so on this coin, if you looked on one side, you would have seen the imprint of the face of Tiberius Caesar, and it had an inscription. And the inscription read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of God is what it implied. And on the other side of the coin, you would have seen another inscription that said Pontifex Maximus, which translates to chief priest or your mediator between you and God. Now, from the perspective of the Pharisees, they used to look at this coin, they used to look at this tax, and they just see it as one of the worst cases of idolatry. You know, God commanded, don't worship an idol, don't make an engraven image, and here is this coin with an engraven image. This coin for the Pharisees represented an idol, not just because of the picture that it bore, but because of the words. It referred to Tiberius Caesar as the son of God. And so not only did this coin represent an idol, but by using it to pay a tax, this tax for simply existing, for simply living in the Roman Empire and breathing. For the Pharisees, they saw this, this like paying this tax as an act of affirming that your life belongs to Caesar. Paying this tax for them was like acknowledging, yes, Tiberius Caesar is the son of God. He is the chief priest. I don't exist for God, I exist for Caesar. That's how the Pharisees saw it. And so going back to this team of Pharisees and Herodians that's been assembled, remember Pharisees on the one hand, you have religious. Herodians on the other hand, you have political. And so the reason I say it was a genius plan to form this team was because how Jesus responds to this question would be their opportunity to trap Jesus. On the one hand, if Jesus says, you know what, pay the tax, then the Pharisees would discredit Jesus and they would say, aha, this guy doesn't care about God. This guy's telling you to pledge your allegiance and affirm that Tiberius Caesar is the son of God, that he is the chief priest. He's breaking God's laws. From the, for the Pharisees, if Jesus responded with, pay your taxes, they were ready to pounce, point at Jesus, and call him a religious phony. They would have said, you know what? This guy cares more about Caesar than he does about God. On the other hand, if Jesus said, don't pay your taxes, this is an act of idolatry, then you've got the Herodians. 
Herodians, the Roman puppets. If Jesus said anything other than pay your taxes, these Herodians would have gone straight to the Roman authorities and said, this guy is committing treason. He's not willing to acknowledge the emperor. He's not willing to acknowledge the authority of Caesar. And guess what? He's telling Roman citizens not to pay their taxes. This is why it was a genius idea. A genius, but it's so smart if you think about it, from the chief priest to assemble this kind of a team. Two opposing parties that hate each other to join forces to trap Jesus. It's an intricate plan. Like, think of how much thinking went, was involved in this. On paper, it seems like a foolproof plan. Because if Jesus says yes, he's screwed. If he says no, he's screwed. And so they drop this question to Jesus. And you can almost picture them like crossing their arms, just smiling smugly, like nodding at each other, like, yeah, we got him. But Jesus tells them to bring a denarius to him. A day's wage. Which says a lot about Jesus, that he didn't have a denarius to use as an illustration. He has to borrow one. But he tells them to bring a denarius. And they bring it. And he holds it up and he shows them the inscription. Tiberius, Caesar, Augustus, son of Augustus. And they probably would have flipped it and shown them. Pontifex Maximus, chief priest. And he tells this opposition and everyone that's present, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, Jesus says, paying your taxes is a secular obligation. If you're God's people, you have a responsibility to submit to secular government and pay your taxes, if that's the law of the land. Pay your taxes. However, do not forget to give to God what belongs to God. You see, the Pharisees hated the idea of paying taxes to the man represented on this image, on this coin. They hated the idea of paying a tax simply for existing because they considered it a form of idolatry. They considered it an act of saying, you know what, I belong to this man. But Jesus in the New Testament epistles teaches us that paying taxes to a secular government is our obligation. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This coin is, you know, it's got an image of Caesar, so give it to him. It's got his name on it, so it must belong to him. So give it to him. But you know what? Forget that. Put that aside. What's more important? Pay to God what belongs to God. Like, pay this, this piece of metal. Give it to the government. But your life, like Pharisees, Herodians, you've forgotten your life belongs to God. You want to talk about who your life belongs to? You want to talk about images? Remember that you were made in the image of God. This coin, this physical coin belongs to Caesar. It's got his name on it. But because you are an image bearer of God, God's name is on you. So pay to God what belongs to God. It was almost a jab at the religious authorities. Like, like they hated the idea of giving to Caesar's Caesar what was owed to him. 
Like they were so like, we're, we need to maintain our religion. We need to make sure we don't fall into idolatry. We need to make, like, we need to make sure that we don't do anything to even remotely suggest that we're affirming Caesar. And yet they disregarded the very fact that they were to give to God everything that was due to him. His honor, his glory, and your life. Not only did they not do this with God the Father, but the very fact that they were opposing Jesus meant that they were not giving God the Son the honor and glory that he was due. And this team, upon hearing this response, because on paper they thought they had a foolproof plan, when they hear this response, all they can do is just marvel. Like, wow. Like, we are the smartest religious intellectual giants of our day. We put all our brains together and formed what we thought was a foolproof plan, and Jesus just dismantled it with one sentence. He dismantled it because they can't accuse him of not answering the question. Because he answered it. And yet the response leaves them with nothing to work with. There's no ammunition that they have that they can use to trap Jesus. And that's how today's passage ends. And it was a short four or five verses and I feel the shorter the passage, the harder it is to come up with an application. Uh, but I've come up with two. And the first application I want us to take away, and just really think about and mull over this week, is this reminder that God commands civil obedience from his people. God commands civil obedience from his people. I remember when I was younger, I became a Christian at 21, and I used to go to a lot of Bible studies, and I remember there was this young guy, like younger than me. Um, we were talking about, you know, how government passes, you know, anti or unbiblical policies, government policies. We see that a lot now, but when it first started to really happen a few years ago, I remember we were just talking about it, and this, man, this young man held up his Bible, and he said, Jay, I refuse to acknowledge any other authority except God. I refuse to obey any law other than what's written in God's word. Um, it was a very random thing to say. Uh, I didn't know how to respond. Like he said it with so much conviction. I don't know what he was expecting me. Was he like, wow, like, like me to applaud him? I don't know what he was expecting. But I corrected him. Because the reality is, is that God's word teaches us explicitly to submit to civil authority, to civil government. And the Bible commands us to civil obedience. Christians are to be law-abiding citizens and submit to government as long as it does not cause us to go against his word. Something to think about when you're driving five kilometers over the speed limit next time when you're in the church. But scripture is quite explicit about this. Romans 13 tells us that secular authority, all authority, but secular authority, government in particular, their authority is given to them by God. 
Whether they believe it or not, whether they accept that or not, the reality, according to God's word, is that their authority, they only have that because God's granted it to them. We don't have to agree with government. We don't have to agree with their policy decisions. But we do have a moral obligation to submit to their authority so far as it doesn't cause us to go against our conscience that's shaped by the word of God. And if that's the case, we have an obligation to be praying for our government and our leaders, whether it's a party that we voted for or not. Uh, I like talking about politics, but I don't like talking about it in sermons because I know that some people have very strong political opinions. But if we look at America, I'll make an exception today. If we look at America, for those of you that remember the 2016 election when Donald Trump became the President of the United States, uh, you'll remember how much animosity there was. Protests in the streets, Democrats up in arms trying to impeach him from day one. Every mainstream news channel attacking Donald Trump. Like I remember I read one article and I watched a news piece. They brought in a psychologist to analyze Donald Trump at a charity event because he asked for two scoops of ice cream instead of one. Like that's the extent that they went. They brought in a psychologist. to analyze. The guy just liked ice cream, but they brought in someone to analyze that. And it was just relentless attacks for four years while he was president. Um, and then Joe Biden became president in 2020 and he's still president now. And it seemed like history repeated itself, but the other way around. And maybe you're a conservative, or maybe you're not so conservative. We live in Australia, where the two main parties are liberal or labor. And maybe you support liberal, maybe you support labor. But as Christians, we have to remember that whoever God puts into power, whether we agree with their policy decisions or not, we have an obligation according to God's word to be citizens of peace, citizens of love, and citizens of prayer. I have many friends that ask me what I think about Joe Biden and what I think about Donald Trump, and I do have very strong opinions, but I won't share that here because um, I don't think it's helpful or necessary. But whenever someone asks me, like, what do you think of Joe Biden? Or back then, what did you think of Donald Trump? Uh, my default response is that I will pray for any leader that comes to power. Whether it's Donald Trump or whether it's Joe Biden, I would put the question back on them. Like, because they usually ask because they hate one person or hate the other. But my question to them was, why wouldn't you want them to do well? Right? Whether you vote for liberal, whether you vote for labor, if you're an Australian citizen, whoever comes to power, why wouldn't you want them to do well? And that's what God's word teaches us. We should pray, whoever gets elected, for them to be able to do well. Hopefully to be able to pass policy decisions that honor God and are biblical. But we have an obligation if we're to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's, part of that involves our civil obedience. To be lawful, peacekeeping, loving citizens of society that pray for their leaders. Because God commands 
civil obedience. Second and final point. Jesus says to render to God what belongs to God. And that's actually the main point of today's passage. Give to God, like forget the taxes, forget their question. The point Jesus was trying to make is you're, you're thinking about these you know, legal loopholes and technicalities about the law. You're forgetting the bigger picture. You need to give to God what belongs to him. And what belongs to him, according to scripture, is our lives. Our entirety, everything about us, our time, our energy, our money, it all belongs to him. It might have been given to us to caretake, but it all belongs to him. Just as God established and gave government their authority, everything that we have is given to us by God. It all belongs to him. And whilst this was a jab at the the Pharisees and the Herodians, I think it can be a jab at us today. Because so often we try to compartmentalize God, don't we? Like, here is my life. I will give 30% of my time to work, a certain portion to my hobbies, and a little percentage to church. A small sliver of my life for God, the rest of it for me. That's not what we're called to live. Christ says, render to God what belongs to him. And according to God's word, everything belongs to him. You know, the Pharisees were worried about an image on a coin. They were worried about what the payment of the taxes would signify, that it might be taken as a gesture, that, you know, you're saying, I belong to Caesar. But scripture teaches that we are made in his image. And this, this, this theme of image, imagery and images comes up in today's passage. Because traditionally back then, whatever had your name and your image on it meant that it belonged to you. That's why Jesus says, this coin has a picture of Caesar, it belongs to Caesar. But by the same token, Jesus is implying you were made in the image of God. Therefore, you belong to him. You are not your own. That's why Paul, whenever he writes his letters, he always refers to himself. He uses this Greek word doulos. In a nicer translation, say, a servant of the Lord. I, Paul, an apostle, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word literally means slave. A slave with no rights. Because Paul recognizes he's no longer a slave to sin, but all people are going to be a slave to something. So he's become a slave to God. If you're going to be a slave to something, it better be a good master. And so this idea that we are made in the image of God, it means we belong to him. Our life is his. And yet so often, like I said, we compartmentalize Jesus, don't we? We'll give him a sliver, a portion of our... We don't want to give him too much. We're very stingy with sacrificing for the kingdom. We're very stingy with serving God's kingdom and giving up and sacrificing for God's kingdom where we'll give just enough so it doesn't cramp our lifestyle but that's it but our money our time our energy our emotional investment our heart according to scripture it all belongs to God 
What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Every aspect of living. Not just physical, not just emotional, your heart, your mind as well. Everything belongs to God. This is the accusation that Jesus launches at the Pharisees and the Herodians when he says, render to God what belongs to God. And whilst it's an accusation that's launched at them, it really gives us some food for thought, doesn't it? When we reflect upon this accusation in the mirror of our own lives, even with service, time, money, worship, it all belongs to him. And I say this is something to think about and mull over. Because there are some of us that even coming to service on time is too much, isn't it? I see people that come in that like wait for the service. You know, that, oh, I'm not trying to single you out, but like, why? It all belongs to him. Every aspect of corporate worship belongs to him. And not just corporate worship. Every aspect of your day belongs to him. When we wake up, the first thing we should be asking God, first thing we should be doing firstly is praying and asking God. Even if we're not fully awake yet, we should be asking God, how can I live this day out for your glory? If we are image bearers, which we are, if we are his property, which we are, if his name is written upon us, which it is, we should be asking, how can I live this day out for you? How can I commit this day to you? Everything belongs to him. And I get it. It's easy to get caught up in the world. Things become busy. And the worries of this life just distracts us, takes our eyes of Christ, even if it's for a moment. And we forget the glaring reality that all of humanity is called to render to God what belongs to him. And so I encourage you to meditate on this passage this week. Just take some time and sit down, prayerfully sit down and ask God for clear insight Just ask God to speak to you, whether it's through his word or whether it's the Holy Spirit bringing a conviction over your heart. Just ask him, Lord, how can I be a better steward of my life? Everything that you've given me, my time, my energy, my money. How can I be a better steward of this to give glory back to you and to honor and serve your kingdom? Not just to live as citizens of earth, but as citizens of heaven rendering to God everything that belongs to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word convicts that so often we we read your word or we hear your word preached and we thank you that your word It's almost like a scalpel where it pierces our heart sometimes and we feel pangs of guilt 
maybe even a bit of shame. As the Holy Spirit convicts us of where where we've allowed things of the world to distract us. But Lord, just as your word convicts, and we thank you for the conviction that's brought about by the Spirit through your word, we do also thank you for your tender gentleness and mercy. That even if we do come to a place of guilt and remorse, that you don't allow us to remain there. But through grace, that we can walk with confidence, knowing that you have shattered the shackles of shame. That no matter what Satan and the forces of darkness try to whisper in our ears, that every time we come to a place of repentance, that we have an assurance through your gospel, through Christ, that we can start again, that we can lift up our sins at the cross and ask for the Holy Spirit for cleansing, knowing we'll receive it, forgiveness, knowing that we will be lavished with it, and be able to start again with the clean slate armed with the Holy Spirit so that we can do better. So Lord, I pray for each and every one of us. We've we've all fallen short in some way or another when it comes to rendering to God what belongs to God. And so Lord, I pray that we would prayerfully meditate on this passage this week, that as each day begins and we open our eyes, that we would begin it by asking you how we can render this day to you how we can be better stewards of the gifts and resources that you've bestowed upon us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.